do that. You really need to figure out what success looks like for you by listening to your life, paying attention to the lessons it wants to teach you. Welcome to your personal branding podcast with Bernard Kelvin Clive, your number one career and business podcast in Ghana, bringing you expert interviews and insights into personal branding, personal development, and publishing. Now, here's your host, Bernard Kelvin Clive. All right, welcome to another edition of your personal branding podcast. And this particular edition, I'm really excited uh, to introduce you Jeff Goins, one of the best-selling authors and uh, creative writers globally. And as writings, one of the person's writings really has influenced what I do. I've been following for all these years, and I'm glad to have him on the subject to do a passion writing and book writing. Jeff Goins, welcome to the personal branding podcast show. Thank you, Bernard. Great to be with you. Jeff, you are known globally as one of the creative writers all over the world, and people really follow you and uh, pick advice from you and there. And to, to get off started, how did you get into writing? Did you find it as a passion or hobby? How did you get into writing stuff? Yeah, it was, um, it was always something that I did. It was always something that I enjoyed doing, but I never really thought of myself as a writer um, for many years. And... Um, uh, you know, I, I think it started with my mom reading me the dictionary on car rides, and I just always loved words. Um, was always you know pretty good with words, and I think a lot of that credit is due to my mom. Um, just you know, she was uh, she loved to read. She was um, she was a woman of words. Her dad was a, a writer, and so I think she just she got that from him and passed it on to me. Um, but it would be you know decades, literally, before I would actually start thinking of myself as a writer. And so how I really got into writing uh, and you know, really started owning the fact that I was a writer uh, was when I had a conversation with my friend Paul, and he asked me what my dream was. And I said, well, I guess my dream is to be a writer. And he said, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And I'd never thought of that before, but after that conversation... I started calling myself a writer, and the more I did that, the more I thought of myself uh, as a writer, the more I wrote and the better I wrote. So that's how it started. Oh, that's that's wonderful, interesting, and more credit to your mom if she's alive or dead. Uh, she's yeah, really, yeah uh, she is. It's uh, about the greatness in you. So reading dictionary to you, that's amazing. Do, do parents do that in this particular age, read dictionary or storybooks? Do we still have parents doing that to their kids? Do, do they still do that, are you asking? Yes, I'm asking. You still have parents on the last scale trying to uh, instill the act of writing or reading their kids, maybe by reading to them here and there, because we are in a very fast-paced world and everybody seems busy. Do we yeah. have parents still doing that? Yeah, I think we do, but you know, as you're pointing out, Bernard, it's it's certainly more rare these days. I mean, the reason my mom read me the dictionary... I think was because there was nothing else to do. You know, I didn't have an iPad or an iPhone. I didn't have a DVD player in the car. We were, you know, we would go on these long road trips for vacation and, um, you know, and then, and there was nothing to do. And so she'd, you know, read me the dictionary. And I think she wanted me to love words like she loved words. Um, but yeah, I think there's lots of distractions now and it's much harder to instill the gift of words and writing and reading into our children. And I know that's, that's something that we, as parents, my wife and I, uh, it's really important to us, but we also struggle with it because it's just easier to pop a movie in than it is to sit down and, and read a book. But uh, our son loves books. He loves 
being read to. He loves reading, and uh, we hope to kind of carry on that tradition in our family. Right, now, let's delve into your latest book, The Art of Work, A Proving Path to Discovering What You Were Meant to Do. Wow, and this has got great reviews. Currently, still the best-selling book on Amazon now in almost uh, uh, three categories, and got reviews from Seth Gordon, Stephen Pressfield, Michael Hyatt, and co. Um, let's look at the subjects of your book, The Art of Work. Now, when you talk about calling, uh, is this just a buzzword, or now what is your calling, what is your purpose? It's What really is it your calling? Yeah, a calling is your purpose. I, I define it as the reason that you're alive. And, um, you know, that's, that can have a, you know, a spiritual connotation for you or not, but really it comes down to this deeper purpose, uh, around which you live your life. So that should, uh, affect the work that you do, but it all, it should also affect the rest of life. You know, your, your relationships, your family, your friends, um, you know, the thing, the hobbies that you pursue, all of that, I think, when a life is lived well, comprises uh, a calling. Now, with that, the question is, how do I find my calling, or what do you call my purpose in life? Yeah, how do you find your calling? Um, I, I think that uh, you you discover your purpose or your calling, and I, I more or less use those words interchangeably. I like the word calling a little bit better because it has a otherness to it, which aligns with my experience and my understanding of what it takes to actually discover um, your your purpose. But, you know, how you find it, I think it's really a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong discovery process. But where it begins and where most people miss the mark is it begins not with looking forward but with looking backward, with paying attention to what your life has already been teaching you. So, for example, when I uh, was, you know, in my late 20s trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, um, I, I discovered uh, this um, guy named Frederick Beekner who said that you need to listen to your life and pay attention to all of the moments because all moments in your life are key moments and, and you'll, you'll understand, you know, kind of some deeper themes in your life that maybe you missed. And one of those things that I noticed was my mom used to read me the dictionary and, on car rides and I loved words and I would always find ways to, uh, pursue creative interests in my life. And so, you know, at, at 27 years old, when I felt like I had no idea what I was supposed to do with my life, I thought, well, maybe I'm supposed to be a writer. And around that same time, I had a conversation with my friend, uh, Paul. So, you know, it's, I kind of unpack this, this whole process in the book, but I think it really begins with this exercise of listening to your life. Uh, an author and activist by the name of Parker Palmer says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. When I started listening to my life, it was telling me to be a writer. And I think uh, the way that we begin to discover our life's purpose is is really just to start with uh, that process of paying attention to the themes that keep coming up in your life. Uh, I don't think that your past necessarily, necessarily dictates your future, but it should inform it. It'll tell you... Um, you know, some of the things that you should be pursuing and some of your interests, passions, and skills that are, are worth, um, you know, uh, pursuing in, in, in hopes of it being your calling. But I think it takes some trial and error to find it. Okay, now still dwelling on, on the, the subject to the theme of purpose and finding your purpose. In your book, The Art of Work, you had mentioned that apprenticeship is one way to help one find this purpose or to help. And I'm thinking, and this particularly, do people undergo apprenticeship or thinking it's old-fashioned, oh, I don't need that. I think right. I need to delve into that myself. What, what do we do about that? 
Well, you know, this word apprenticeship, um, it's still, it's still, um, used in, in certain parts of the world. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not as, uh, you know, it's, it's not as widely, uh, used in terms of how we find careers as it once was, you know, during the, uh, Middle Ages and even during the Renaissance. Uh, you know, if you wanted to pursue a, a craft, a trade, you would have to apprentice under another craftsperson and, and learn everything that they were going to do. And that process typically took about 10 years. It took seven years of learning under, you know, under a teacher and then two or three years of doing it on your own before then you became a master and could teach other people. That is an old fashioned concept for most of us. You know, most of us, uh, um, you know, don't have somebody that we can go learn under for 10 years. And m- many of us didn't grow up, uh, you know, uh, in a family where one trade was passed on from generation to generation. There's still some of that in the world, but it's uh, far less the norm than it used to be. Uh, that said, I think apprenticeship is essential to the process of discovering your purpose. You aren't going to figure out what you're supposed to do with your life until you see somebody else doing it, learning how it's done, and then start practicing what you're observing. And uh, in the book, I uh, talk about this idea of an accidental apprenticeship, that there are people around you in your life, in your community, in your city, uh, who you can learn from that aren't you know, necessarily a formal mentor or a teacher, uh, but you can intentionally uh, engage in relationship with them. Sometimes that, that means uh, you, know, it, it, you know them, you meet with them, you, you, you know, spend time with them. Uh, other times, you know, as I imagine it is for many of your podcast listeners, Bernard, um, they're learning from you from afar, you know, and, and you're mentoring them, uh, probably without even completely, you know, knowing, knowing that or knowing all those people. Uh, and, you know, those people, the listeners the listening to this are, are the smart ones. They're intentionally, uh, trying to learn from other people. And I think the opportunity to, uh, have some sort of formal apprenticeship where somebody comes and chooses you and says, I'm going to teach you. Uh, that's difficult. Not everybody gets those opportunities. But the opportunity to engage in an accidental apprenticeship, to find people around you that you can learn from right now, is available to everyone, I think. So we look at accidental apprenticeship or, or maybe virtual mentors that we can lend me through a podcast or a book or something. Yeah. And I believe there are quite a number of people who are following or uh, you are being trained by. You may buy your blog post and your podcast just by following you through. So that's also an, a way or, or a center on apprenticeship by learning from you in, in, the, in, that, in that sense. So not really old-fashioned, as you say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you have people pitching to you every now and then wanting you to mentor them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mentoring, coaching. Yeah, yeah, I, I get asked to do that a lot, and I, I usually turn it down just because I don't have um, – uh, enough time. You know, one of the things that I do though to try to scale my time is I will do things like this. I'll, um, I'll teach online courses. I teach a few online courses. And then I use my blog. I mean, my blog and my podcast are a great means of sharing my best information, uh, for people. But in addition to that, you know, I still try to meet with people on a regular basis. I have, you know, standing meetings every Wednesday for, uh, people that are, that are local or are traveling through, uh, my city, Nashville. And, uh, you know, if they're dropping in and, you know, it works schedule wise, I'll, I'll certainly meet with them. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's challenging, you know, to, to do all of that, but it's also really important to me because I've been the recipient of mentoring and, uh, you know, I want to be able to turn around and give that back to somebody else because I think it is, it is really important. But, you know, uh, again, I, I think that 
whether or not somebody says they're going to coach you or mentor you, there are still opportunities to learn. Hmm. Still opportunities to learn. Now, let's look at this. This one, one, one wild question that people keep on popping up as I asked, but they ask, how do I make a living out of writing? You're a successful writer, uh, you know, you feel that you, what you've been doing, but one, uh, someone asks, how do I make a living as an author? I don't think uh, writing pays. What advice or where would you give to such people or encouragement that uh, I don't think writing pays? Yeah, well, I think one of the hardest ways to make a living as a writer is to just try to make money off of your writing alone. Uh, one of the ideas in the book is called The Portfolio Life, and it's this idea that you have a lot of different skills as a writer, as a creative, as a speaker, you know, whatever it is that you do, you can combine your skills uh, in interesting ways that will that will give you a unique advantage in the marketplace and uh, make you much more hireable and, and make it much easier for you to make a living supporting yourself using your skills uh, but combining them with other skills. So, for example, if you're a writer, uh, you may not make all all of your money off of just you know uh, writing books. Uh, although you can make a good living these days, especially off of self-publishing, uh, but you might, you know, have to write some freelance articles, uh, you know, uh, write articles for other magazines or websites, or do, you know, freelance copywriting for uh, websites and, you know, clients. Uh, one of the things that I think writers, um, an advantage that writers have over other people is uh, every website, every company, every organization that wants to market itself, which is every you know every business out there, um, they need somebody with good writing ability that can help them you know market their ideas. And so, if you're a writer and you can learn a little bit about marketing, um, there's no reason you should ever be without a job. So you know, I, I think it's less about trying to get paid to do one thing, and it's more about mm. finding a few things that you can do, and then finding you know a, a demand for those skills. So you suggest that uh, uh, authors or writers need to diversify their portfolio at scale yeah. to look at other areas that they can make more income to. Now, you, in your book, you, you, you mentioned about the mystery of motivation. Is there really something like mystery motivation or even is you, Jeff? What motivates you in, in your writing? So I, I was curious, what does it take for uh, people to become really great at something, to master a skill or a trade? And I read a bunch of books and talked to a bunch of people about this, and it seems that for the most part, you know, everybody agrees that what it takes to master a skill is you have to spend a lot of time doing it. You have to do it with focused intensity, uh, and 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 you have to do it to the point that um, you know you're utterly exhausted. You have to kind of max out. You know, you have to write the best book that you can. You have to run as fast as you possibly can if you want to be the fastest runner in the world to the point that you you know push yourself beyond your abilities uh, i mean it takes uh a a strong will and a certain tenacity to master skill uh but beyond that it, you have to love it you have to uh be really really motivated to do it like if, if somebody's you know having to wake you up every morning to go to work then you're not really motivated to to do do your job and uh, so I asked a guy named Daniel Coyle who wrote a book called The Talent Code, and he you know, researches this topic really, really well. And I said, where does that motivation come from? And he said, nobody knows. We don't know. He says it's just kind of a mystery. It just comes. He called it a spark. And, and, and he said, you know, uh, typically it happens when you're a child. You know, you'll see uh, 
uh, a dancer and you go, oh, I, I want to dance. Or you'll see, uh, you know, somebody playing baseball and you go, wow, like that looks awesome and I want to, I want to play baseball. It's a spark. It's some sort of, uh, thing that, that kind of just sparks in you and you go, wow, that, that looks really interesting. Without that spark, it's impossible to become great at something. You'll eventually give it up because you're not motivated. So in regards to what motivates me, uh, you know, I'm motivated by a lot of different things. I'm particularly motivated to uh, serve and support my family, my wife and my son. That's kind of how I got into all this in the first place. Um, uh, you know, and really try to make a living doing this was so that my wife could stay home to raise our son. But beyond that, I... I'm motivated to help people. I find it really rewarding to, um, uh, you know, use my skills to help other people um, succeed in the world. And um, uh, you know, the, and I just love it. I mean, I love writing. And, and so those three things, you know, uh, having a family to support, having people that that you know want and need my writing, and then the fact that I love it, doing it myself. I mean, those provide enough motivation for me to feel really good about what I do. Great. Well, let's look at in your book. You had banged the idea of ten thousand hour rule, so that if you do something consistently for ten thousand hours, you become a master at it. But you say no, no, no. That's not entirely true. Um, let, let us know about. Yeah. That. So I mean, the idea of the ten thousand hour rule is um, is really uh, referring to a study by a guy named K. Anders Ericsson from the University of Florida, where he basically observed that. Um, that world-class musicians had an average of 10,000 hours, a minimum of 10,000 hours of practice before they became world-class, before they became great. And uh, and yet when you read that, so we've kind of taken that idea and said, well, if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you're going to be an expert. That's not ex- that's not mm-hmm. actually true. The study says that you have to put in enough time, you have to do it to uh, you know the point of uh, utter exhaustion, and uh, the activity itself cannot be what he calls, what uh, K. Anders Ericsson calls, inherently motivating, which is interesting because we just talked about you have to love it, but uh, Ericsson says that, um, uh, yeah, you need to be motivated to do it, but the way in which you do it needs to be so incredibly difficult that it's not fun. And um, I think we discount that when we think of a hobby. We go, well, like I love tennis, and if I play tennis for you know 10,000 hours, but don't do the right kind of practice... Um, you know, I, we think that we're going to become experts, but that's not actually true. What I talk about in the book is this idea of painful practice. Daniel Coyle calls it deep practice, but it's this idea that you have to dig deep into your abilities and push yourself to the utter limits to uh, do something that at the time you don't like doing it, but then, you know, when it's over, you go, wow, that was that was fun. I want to do that again. I mean, it's, it's this, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit of a paradox. Uh, but uh, I feel that way about writing. You know, I, I, I there are times when I don't want to do it, but I do it anyway, and I go, okay, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I think the same thing is true with your calling. There are few things in your life that you can do to the point of utter exhaustion uh, repeatedly over and over and over again and not grow tired of them. But I think your calling is one of those things. And so painful practice, the uh, art of pushing yourself to, you know, to your utter limits and then a little bit further – um, that is a process that not only helps you get good at something, it also helps you figure out, is this something that you even want to practice in the first place? And like mm-hmm. I said, there aren't many things that we're willing to do with that kind of intensity. 
And so you, you're thinking that in, in whatever the case it should be in the area of your passions and your giftings or calling so that you can do that extensively even when you get tired because you, you, you're passionate about it, you want to be almost the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, that's right. All right, now let's look at all that's happening on social media, on digital age. Do you think, as, as authors or people coming, do, 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 do our future um, people need to be more entrepreneurial in, in, in the area of dealing with their business? Yes. Uh, so, you know, I mentioned earlier the idea of the portfolio life. You know, you were asking about how does a writer make a living? Well, you know, he makes a living, uh, like, like most people are starting to make a living, which is by doing a bunch of different things. And um, that idea of a portfolio life was a term that I borrowed from a, a book by the name of uh, – a, a book called The Age of Unreason by a guy named Charles Handy. And in that book, which was published in 1989 uh, in the UK, uh, Handy says that in the future, we will not have one career for 40 years. We will have a bunch of mini careers, a bunch of short uh, stints in different uh, job opportunities, and that will comprise our career. And he says this is actually how we're wired. This is what we're uh, where we find you know work to be the most fulfilling when we're doing several things, not just one thing. And what's interesting about that is that was a prediction in 1989. So now here we are in 2015, and recently there was a study that was um, published and uh, republished on, on by Forbes, and they talked about. Uh, but basically the study w- was observing uh, trends in the workforce, and this was in the U.S., I think. Um, but basically they were observing that uh, by the year 2020, so in five years, half of the American workforce is going to be uh, freelance. They're going to have more than one job. They're going to have a bunch of independent, you know, gigs and and you know multiple clients that they're going to be working for. And and you know this is because organizations are getting smaller. They're not getting larger because people are valuing their freedom and independence more. They want to do not just one job, you know, from you know 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. They want to do a bunch of different things and have more control over their time. So what's interesting about that, Bernard, is. Uh, you know, most people I talk to do not consider themselves entrepreneurial, but in the next five years, uh, many of us are going to be forced into entrepreneurship, whether we like it or not. And so if you're starting to think about that now, if you're starting to think about how can I diversify the portfolio of work that I'm building right now, how can you do that now? Uh, you'll be ahead of the game. You'll be ahead of the curve because whether we like it or not, it's, it's going to be something that, uh, we're all going to have to deal with very, very soon. Right now, there's a saying that we're all saying that um, the li- life is is lived forward but understood yeah. backwards. And you said in your book that we don't understand our calling until we are at the end of our lives looking back. Can you explain that and how true is that? And how can we have in the midst of that job satisfaction today that every single day I still love my job and I'm satisfied and happier for doing the work that I love to do. So there's this movie called Mr. Holland's Opus with Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's a movie of uh, uh, a musician who really just wants to create this symphony his whole life. He's a, he's a classical musician, wants to write this symphony, and he's on tour with uh, a group, with an orchestra, and he's called home uh, to because his wife is pregnant. And so he ends up taking a job at a high school teaching music. Um, and this is a fictional story, but it has a really great moral to it. 
and uh, and basically he never goes back to being a musician. He 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 takes it as a part time job and ends up um, doing it for the rest of his life. And in the final scene of the movie, when he is about to retire, he's actually uh, the music program is is getting canceled and he's you know getting kicked out of uh, out of the school. Um, he's being forced into retirement. As he's about to leave, he enters the gymnasium of the school, and there are all these students there who are there to celebrate him and thank him. And it's you know hundreds, if not thousands, of students. And in the final scene of the movie, they ask him to direct uh, a symphony, his symphony that he never finished, and uh, it, it will be performed by all of the students from previous you know classes that he has made an impact on. And uh, one of the students is now the governor of the state. And she says to Mr. Holland, she says, Mr. Holland, we are your symphony. We are, you know, the, 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 the work that you were creating, the great work. And in this, you know, final beautiful finale of uh, the movie, he realizes that his life's work wasn't about being a great musician. It was about um, helping, you know, other people uh, understand and, and use uh, the gift of music. And he understands it at the you know very end of his end of his life, and it's you know it's beautiful. But he remembers all this frustration and you know things that he w- had to go through. I think um, that we don't have to wait completely until the end of our lives. Yes, life is understood backward, uh, but I don't think that we have to wait until we're on our deathbeds to go. Okay, I get it now, and I believe that's true because I've met these people. I- I've met these people that are in their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties who understand the purpose of their life now. They're not having to wait until the end of their lives to completely understand it. Now, I do think that there are certain parts that you just won't understand um, until you know you kind of live through them. That seems true for you know me and my experience and most people I talk to. Uh, but I think that um, one of the ways that we can live our legacy now is by paying attention to this quote by Jackie Robinson, an old American baseball player, uh, and uh, he says this. He says that um, a life is not significant except for its impact on others. And so as we're pursuing our life's work, uh, as Mr. Holland was pursuing his life's work, we need to be looking around at the people that are a part of that work, that we're impacting, and and ask ourselves, am I bringing other people along on this journey, or do I think this is just about me? If you do that, I think you can begin to appreciate the the impact and the importance of the work that you're doing now as opposed to you know at the end of your life wow that is amazing and i think if people really take this to heart they can do amazing work daily because sometimes it's still on the, on the path of calling and purpose people tend to miss the whole idea and think it's someday at, at someday yeah. life is someday but not knowing that it's now could be even a lesser thing that you're doing. And one writer said that sometimes being just could be a great mom to your yeah. kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, that's, um, I think that your calling doesn't have to be some huge world-changing thing. Uh, it does have to be a combination of the thing that you love, that you're excellent at, that um, also you know, makes some sort of impact on, on someone else. Let's look at um, the overall purpose. That why did you write this book? That's I wrote this book because I've heard more and more people talk about work in these sorts of terms, uh, vocation, purpose. Uh, it seems that in our world today, all over the world, that we're thinking less in terms of a job as a means of making a living, although that's important, uh, and more of 
how the work that we do can help us make a meaningful life. I see lots of people trading success for significance, uh, you know, as opposed to just creating a plan and, and achieving all your goals and making it all about you. Uh, more and more people I talk to are thinking about their work in these terms. Like, how can I do something that matters, that makes a difference, where money isn't the primary motivation for uh, going to work. Again, I think we all have to, you know, make money to live and support ourselves and our families if we have them. So I'm not uh, opposed to that. But I wrote the book to um, kind of, you know, introduce some of these ideas that I already heard people talking about, but I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't find many books that that approach this subject from this perspective. And so, you know, I heard people talking about it, and I wanted to use the book as a sort of a conversation piece where people could talk about the, their life's purpose, the work that they were doing, and, and the things that they wanted to do. And hopefully the book gives them a context. It gives them some vocabulary to use to better understand uh, what's lacking in their lives and then also, um, you know, how to take practical steps to um, move closer to that purpose. As you said, Bernard, you know, people say, well, someday I'm going to do this. I don't think if you if you're saying someday you're saying never. The point of the art of work is to get you to realize that you have a calling, there's a purpose to your life and you can start living that right now and and here's a picture of what that path might look like. Wow, that's amazing. And I think there's a book that uh, every author or writer really needs to grab a copy to really understand the, the, the whole idea of being an author and, and, and writer. And even poets especially because they are the c- kind of people that they really, most of them think that how, how do I make money really even as a, as a, as a poet. Because only few people really love to buy something to do poetry unless I'm doing performing perfor- performance. But if they truly understand their calling, like you mentioned, they will really find other alternative or diverse portfolio to make it. Absolutely. Now, Jeff, what will be your billion-dollar advice to the world in the area of authorship, calling, and my billion-dollar advice? Gosh, that's a that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I I think that's um, I think that most people um, don't understand uh, what their life is about. They think that um, you know they they think that they need to chase their passion, and they're not really paying attention to what people really need or want from them. And I see so many people uh, you know pursuing the wrong thing. And I think now more than ever. Our greatest danger uh, in the world of work, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, trying to build a, a successful career, is that we could be successful in the wrong things. It's not whether you succeed or fail. It's it's rather whether you succeed at the right thing or the wrong thing. And so, you know, I, my advice is um, pay attention to what your life is telling you, the things that you're good at, the things that you should be doing and should not be doing, the things that you're passionate about. And as you listen to your life, I think it will reveal to you uh, what you're meant to do. And um, it, and, and I think people uh, tend to miss the mark when they see somebody else's success. They chase somebody else's version of success instead of what they're meant to do, what they're called to do. And they get to the end of their lives and they realize, man, I chased the wrong thing. Uh, you know, I, that's that's my greatest fear is that I will be on my deathbed realizing I spent all this energy on, on the wrong thing. And I don't know if that's a billion, billion dollar idea, but the most 
successful people mm-hmm. and also the happiest people I talk to, they know what their life is about and they are pursuing that with uh, you know single-mindedness, with great focus and intensity and not worrying about what other people are doing. Uh, I think that that's a, a recipe for disaster if you're constantly looking at the success of others and going, oh, I, I want to do that. You really need to figure out what success looks like for you by listening to your life, paying attention to the lessons it wants to teach you, and then you know start taking the steps in that direction. I think uh, that'll take you pretty far. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jeff Gwang. Jeff, where can one connect with you? I know you have a community, you have online courses, and you do a whole lot of things. Uh, let us know where one can have access to all your materials and your best yeah. books. Well, thank you for doing this, Bernard. Um, uh, thanks for your show and, and the work that you do. Um, people can find me at my blog, which is GoinsWriter, G-O-I-N-S, Writer.com. And there's a free email newsletter there. You can get free tips from me on writing and business and creativity. And so um, that's a great place to connect with me. And there's also a link to my book and you know all kinds of other great stuff there. But that's, that's the best place is GoinsWriter.com. GoinsWriter.com. Thanks, Jeff Goins, um, uh, for all the resources and knowledge shared. I think... Listeners will find this real resourceful and the book to grab your copy. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Bernard. Yeah, great. I want to recommend my books on Amazon for you today. Visit Amazon.com and get access to all my 15 plus books today. I recommend the latest book on personal branding that is Rebrand, the ultimate guide to personal branding. Get one today and grab a copy for someone else. That is Rebrand. The best is yours. <laughs>